Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Catherine, and I'm joined tonight by my amazing co-hosts, Amanda and Jean. Hi, ladies. Hi, Catherine. Catherine. Thank you for being here. It's so nice to hear your voices. Great to hear you. Hi, everybody. Tonight, we're going to be talking about ego and how it can be a burr under our recovery saddle or prevent us from fully committing to sobriety. It's a bit of a tricky topic to understand, particularly because the ego doesn't want us messing with it. So we've asked Chris to be our guest again to help us parse the topic. Regular listeners will remember Chris was a guest on our willingness episode on March 10th, and he spoke about ego on that episode, which gave us the topic idea for tonight. So welcome, Chris, and thanks for the inspiration. Thank you, ladies. It's great to be here again with you. Glad to have you. So we all want to be individuals and to present an image to the world that we're capable, in control, and essentially put together. Besides, the world is a scary place. Vulnerability and honesty might put us in danger if people really knew us. Our egos say, I am responsible for your survival. Trust me, I'm in control. And this is our best thinking. Here are some examples of what ego sounds like. I can't be an alcoholic. I'm a good person. I pay my bills. I never lost a job. I never had a DUI. I don't drink during the day. I just don't like that label. You really don't understand my problems or my life. You drink too if you had my spouse, my family, my history of trauma, my mean boss, my stressful job. I can't stop drinking. I have to entertain clients for work. My spouse's job has us traveling to France twice a month. All my friends drink, and I'll have no social life. I just don't really see how this is possible. The reason I got the DUI was because that stupid cop was a jerk. Besides, the only reason I even was drinking and driving that night was because my spouse left early. What was I supposed to do? It wasn't my fault. Why don't people just leave me alone? Okay, maybe I have a problem with alcohol, but I can handle it myself. I will get sober, but I can't go to treatment. I can't attend recovery meetings, call other alcoholics every day, share my feelings, or pray. I don't think it's realistic to expect me to do all those things with my busy schedule. I really don't feel comfortable sharing my personal business with other people. And besides, I don't relate to any of these people. I'm different. Well, thank you, ladies. So I think it's helpful to hear what ego can sound like. And so let's you know begin by talking about these and see if they resonate. Um, so Chris, starting with you, I, I know you've got a lot of thoughts on this topic. Yeah, it, it's it's weird because I 
this was something. I was just going to say this was something that was so hard for me to understand, and I'm not sure I still understand it. Um, which is, I think, one of the one of the amazing things about ego. But um, I, I was just telling you before that there was this guy. He's still around. Um, great speaker called Sandy Beach, and also who has the, one of the best names ever, right? Sandy Beach. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, absolutely. <laughs> it's so great, and that's his that's just his real name. But um, he has this thing where he talks about ego, and it helped to explain it better than anything that I um, that I had ever heard. And I guess it can also go to, like, Eckhart Tolle and the power of now and things like that. But, um, you know, the ego does not want me – my ego doesn't want me to ever – be able to be in a moment and just to be able to enjoy it and actually be happy with, you know, with where I am um, at any given time. And so, you know, he, he explained it like this. The ego is, um, wants you to be out of that moment. So it goes and says, oh, my God, look at your past. Look at everything that you've done. How could you have done this? And, you know, living in your past. And, you know, then you do some work and you finally get okay with your past. And you're like, all right. I just got all that cleared up and, you know, I feel good about where I am and everything. And then all of a sudden your ego says to you, all right, we haven't checked on our future in a while. Let's go check on our future. And you go and you're in the future and you're living in the future. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but for me, you know, if I'm living in the future, it's usually not good. You know, it's not like I'm picturing everything just coming up all great for me. It's filled with a lot of fear and anxiety and, you know, things are going to go bad and it could be five minutes from now, it could be five years from now. And you come back from that and you're like, oh my God, I don't even want to live. You guys are going to, you know, you don't understand how scary this is. And, you know, and that's what ego is. You know, it's that taking you out of that moment, taking you out of yourself so that you're either living in the past or in the future, and, you know, that you're not able to actually ever be present. You know, you're not able to actually enjoy a moment, any time, because your mind, you know, and I, I think that as alcoholics and addicts, you can really, um, you know, I, I can really relate to that because my mind always is working overtime, you know, and a lot of times it's not telling me good things, um, you know, so... That's that was one way that I really that just helped me understand it so well. And I, I heard it had a recovery meeting the other day that worry is not an action, and that really resonated yeah. with me because I was always sort of, you know, and I still do worry about the future, and it's it's, yeah. it's funny. Funny enough, it's never really gotten me anywhere. Who knew? <laughs> Exactly. Gene, how about you? Did, did any of these kind of resonate with you? Oh, well, you know that I'm the anxiety queen, right? So yeah, <laughs> I get quite caught up in in worrying about the future or exploring all the what ifs. <clears throat> so that can be that can be quite a thing, and I think that's really a sign of sort of being caught in thinking that I should somehow be controlling it. Or, you know, in charge of it, I guess. And right. that's 100% the ego, right, that that wants to control everything. Yeah, um, that's, that's and certainly I think that, how my ego show, show, showed up was, was controlling. Yeah. And I think, that's, I think that's how we sometimes get um, some of us 
are very aware as we walk farther into addiction, but we think we should be able to control it, and we're, you know, we're trying to pull it back, but our hands keep slipping on the rope because it's moving faster than we are, and um, you can't you can't solve addiction with with your ego. You can't think your way out of it. You can't control it. I think it's instead of trying to control, like addiction is a reality and you can't change a reality, you can only change a problem. So I say you have to accept that it's a reality and that means swallowing your ego a little bit and and saying, okay, that's a reality I can't control, but maybe there's something I can change about myself that will allow me to live with this reality of being an addict or being an alcoholic. And that's it's a so funny when hard thing. See that, Catherine? Yeah, that, well, I was just going to say, as soon as you said that, when you said addiction is a reality that you can't control your ego, I, I really felt my ego kind of pop up in my head there and try to refute that. Like, oh, yes, I can. Like, I want to fight that reality. <laughs> I, I kind of heard the, heard that little voice. Um, I mean, so let's talk about that of, like, examples of when – we were actively drinking, um, how did ego show up? Yeah, so one thing um, that I heard early on that just helped me really so much was um, the whole idea of that the egomaniac with an inferiority complex. And Mm -hmm. when I heard that, it was just like a stake to my heart because it just explained me so well. Um, you know, and it, because the, the reality was that if you met me when I was active, which was, you know, the majority of my life, you would think, and a lot of people, I, I remember somebody described me this way, a business partner um, said, you know, the, only, the first word that comes to mind is ego, meaning that I came across as cocky and arrogant and, um, you know, really full of myself. But the reality was I was, that that was all driven that was i was all full of fear and you know that was one of the things that i had to understand and uh, about ego and about all of this is that it's so much of it is fear based so it's all about all right if i project this image and if i don't let anyone in or anything like this nobody's going to know how uh, can we curse on, uh, whatever how messed up I really am um, and you know or just how scared I am or how lonely I am or you know how whatever I am and you know the, that that's the ego that's like the, you know your your defense mechanisms it's coming you know you think that oh well this is if I put up this veneer if I put up this facade then you know nobody can really understand who I truly am and how messed up I truly am um, you know, and getting back to like addiction with that is it's the same thing, you know, all right, for for me, I was able to, I, I was more and more successful, the worse and worse my addiction got, which was, you know, it's a strange thing, but that's just how it was. And so that, you know, became a great justifier. You know, my ego was like, wow, you have all this stuff. You have more money than you ever had. You have this, this, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, how can we really have a problem here? Let's not, you know, let, let's not let, um, all these people who actually are making sense get in the way and, you know, convince you that you have a problem. You know, so you can really uh, think about the ego so closely to your disease. You know, they're the same thing in, in you know, most cases. 
Yeah, this is Catherine. I, I know that I that egomaniac with an inferiority complex uh, saying definitely resonated with me, and I drank over that facade <laughs> for sure. I mean, I just it was so hard to maintain um, this image of you know who I thought I ought to look like, and just having a lot of fear about who I really was inside. And, and if anyone found out that you know what I was really like, um, that kind of pressure, I, I drank over that for sure. Amanda, yeah. how about you? Does that, does that sound, any of this resonate? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my, um, I think my, mine, um, came through as workaholism, um, mm-hmm. because I didn't, mm-hmm. um, I didn't want anyone to see that, you know, anything was wrong with me that in that, you know, I couldn't control what was going on. So, I mean, I, like, mastered my, my job. Like, I would just take on, like, these ridiculous amounts of, of responsibility and get all these projects done, and I would work, you know, 70, 80 hours a week um, to get them done just to, you know, to show that, you know, I was fine. I had everything under control. You know, look at me. Look at how great I am. I can do all these things, and everything's perfect. And, you know, it was kind of a big joke, too. I mean, I would do stuff on the weekends, and I'd have to, like, wait for, you know, Monday to proofread with the emails that I put together to make sure they made sense. <laughs> you know, but I... It, yeah. <laughs> I look back now and I laugh, but I remember one time sending an email and like reading, like not doing that, and I was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I sent that! Like I'm gonna be found out." Yeah. Um, and I was horrified. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just this this weird thing. And um, yeah, I mean, there's there's so much with ego with me and getting sober. I I, I mean, I I could go on or not. I mean, <laughs> well, well, I know we're gonna dig into different parts of it, but I mean, I it really. Um, the inferior ar- inferiority complex um, really uh, resonate resonates with me. You know well, what? I think uh, I love- Go ahead, Chris. Sorry. Oh no, I just wanted to say uh, just something that Amanda just said about I'm going to be found out, and it, it's amazing how many people, um, whether that are in recovery, out of recovery, or even people who don't have an um, who don't have a drug or alcohol problem where that is such a resonating thing like that whole idea that you know you're a fraud you know that I'm a fraud no matter what um you know it, it's just something that it just amazes me how how many people just share that same exact belief about everything you know like all right one day I'm doing so good but you know one day everyone's just going to realize that I'm a complete fraud um you know it's just that I'm just glad you brought that up because it's something that really, really just resonates. Yeah, we're actually planning an episode about perfectionism just because Mm. it's really come up so often in our conversations here. And it's just, I kind of feel like there's those two tricky sides to grandiosity, you know, like feeling better or worse than everyone else, um, sometimes all at once. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and Amanda, I was the same, you know, just that the workaholism was really a major um, source of my trying to maintain some sort of image just in case you all found out that I was broken. Yeah, well, there was no way you could tell me I was broken. 
that you know I was so good at my job. There was you know there was no I I absolutely there was there was no talking to me. I mean and I and I actually I I should add I carried that into the home um because at home my uh, my ex-husband didn't want to you know he didn't really like doing some of the stuff around the house and so I would go and do things. I mean I would go and like I I redid my fireplace. I I like <laughs> ripped out whatever was around it. I, I tiled it. I put, like, a wood frame around it. I put a mantle in by myself. So you don't tell me I can't drink when I'm doing that. Like, it, I mean, it was – I look back and I, I laugh. I'm like, like, wh- I, I wouldn't even consider asking for help. Like, and I, and I would just do those things, and I was like, and tell me I'm not perfect. Go for it. I dare you because I am. You know, I, and, I, and I never – and I never thought of myself as being like an arrogant person in any way or having any sort of ego. But I, I look back now and I'm like, wow, holy crap! <laughs> it's uh, I really did. I, I had to jot Jean, down um, when Chris Amanda, said it was. Go ahead, Jean. Sorry. I'm just wondering, Amanda, when you were doing a project like that, did you enjoy it, or were you sort of spiteful as you did it? No, I I would enjoy. I mean, there were definitely things I did that I was spiteful for. That you know, when I actually the the few times that I asked for help, and um, I, well, my my ex husband was smart. He had a game. He he would say like, "Oh, you can't do that. You can't do it by yourself." And so I would. So I mean, that was that was kind of uh, <laughs> that was a, that was a little game, um, a little manipulation that I mean, I was somewhat aware of. But I and I would do it, and I'd be. I would be angry, um, but no, there were there were certainly times where it was it was just what I wanted to do. But I, I think it was be, I wanted to do it because it justified everything, you know, that I was, you know, I was the great I am, you know, mm-hmm. the great I am. And and Chris yeah. said the great ju- that was the great justifier. I mean, I was the mm. same way. It was like, you know, oh, and this really played into I have uncovered in sobriety this big victim complex of like oh poor me you know i i work 12 hour days and you know now i have to come home and do all the housework which you know a number of years ago i i did now i have a housekeeper but um <laughs> in and does it but so i've gotten a little bit smarter but um you know, oh, I have to do everything by myself, and I, you know, you would drink too, and isn't everything so put together and perfect? And, you know, honestly, I stayed in a very abusive marriage for a long time, I think, to maintain, which was an actively alcoholic marriage as well, like to, to maintain that um, image of, like, everything's okay. Mm-hmm. I was that insistent. It's probably why I got married in the first place, but that's probably another program. Um, <laughs> and and I had jotted down when I was doing some research for the show, just going back to what Chris said about fear, that um, A Course in Miracles actually describes ego as literally a fearful thought. And mm-hmm. that that has helped me understand ego very well. So if I... If I wonder, am I doing, if, are my motivations correct for something? If I'm doing it out of fear, like staying in a bad relationship um, or a job or, or what have you, or am I, you know, insisting on making 
you know, homemade cupcakes for my kid's school project, you know, or whatever. Is, is that some fear of being found out? Um, then I know that's incorrect motivation. Um, Jean, what do you think about this idea of a fearful thought? Well, I think it's I think it's fear of having to change. That's my experience mm. in that. I think I was trying to be so perfect to prove that I wasn't the one that needed to change. And I think it took me a long time into recovery even to really see that it that you know, I didn't need to just stop drinking. There was things about myself that I just thought were realities that I just thought that's just how it is. And it took me a while to kind of unpick some of that stuff and realize, hey, you know what? That's not how it is. That's how I've learned to see it. And I can rethink mm-hmm. this and reapproach it and change me. And I think that's the ego. The ego is the part of us that wants to control everything around us without having to change ourselves because we, you know, we want to be perfect at, at the same time as we're deeply terrified that everyone's going to find out we're not. But it's that struggle, right? And Chris, the, the, the situation you described, um, I've heard the word imposter syndrome used for that. Mm. You know, we feel like a fraud. We know we're putting up a good front, but we also know that there's more or less, I guess, underneath it all than what people see. And Mm. for me, recovery has been really about making friends with, with that little girl inside of me that's so terrified of being found out and sort of bringing her out into the world and letting her flourish and just being really authentic and comfortable and that is absolutely the opposite of ego it's and it's so much easier to live with but i i think mm-hmm. fear and i we all fall back into that um wanting to protect ourselves so we put up a a facade or a, a, we wear armor you know i always say my clothes and my armor and my makeup's my armor because it makes me intimidating and keeps people from maybe um i don't know just seeing how vulnerable i might feel so there's a lot there's a lot of fear I think that I have experienced and um when we're vulnerable we're brave right we know that because of the fabulous Brené Brown putting those words together for us and um so to be brave enough to to be vulnerable and take off some of that armor and say okay maybe it's me that needs to change cuz how I'm doing this and my my excellent ways of doing everything have resulted and me drinking a box of wine every three days, that's not so good. <laughs> Maybe I need to take it all back to the source and change everything so that the outcome stays changed. Well, there's there's so much there, Jean. I, I want to talk about um, control, and I also want to talk about outcomes. Um, you know, one thing that I've kind of been practicing is saying thank you to my ego for getting me this far, for protecting mm. me. You know, it's, it was a big survival piece for me. I came out of uh, a lot of chaos growing up. And so my need to control everything and my uh, pretty severe inability to authentically connect with people and, and make myself vulnerable, um, that 
which has been very painful in, in recovery. And, and I, I've shared that on the program and Chris has seen that in real life since he saw me unfolding sort of after my fourth and fifth step um, and, and how, how I struggled with getting vulnerable, but I've sort of had mm. to say, you know, thank you ego. You know, you've gotten me this far. Appreciate the help. You're not getting kicked to the curb entirely. You're just, you can take a rest right now. You know, we're going to, we're going to try this a different way. Um, you know, you don't have to control every single outcome because that has gotten us to not great places. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Oh, I was just going to say um, something when you guys were talking that just really wanted to bring up is that I think that it's really important to realize that this is like a day-to-day thing, and a lot of times a minute-to-minute or an hour-to-hour, um, you know, it, because I think sometimes when we talk about things, it can sound like, oh, well, you know, you have it all together. Like I, I could talk and somebody could hear me and be like, or see what I'm posting on Facebook or writing or whatever it is and be like, wow, he's really got it all together. And it, you know, it could be a minute later that, you know, my ego and, you know, just how I feel is like completely worthless, completely down. Um, you know, so I have to do so much stuff to, in order to try to keep that at bay. All the stuff that you guys are talking about, being more authentic, um, being vulnerable, being, you know, more the person that I was meant to be, um, it's hard. It's hard work, you know, and that's mm-hmm. that, that's the reality. And I think I always like to just say that because, you know, for people, especially people early in recovery and, you know, I, I work with a bunch of different, um, you know, guys that, um, you know, it's part of our, my program and, you know, and, and they'll struggle so hard and, you know, I'll have to tell them that, yeah, you know what, yesterday or just a minute ago, I was in that same exact place as you mm-hmm. and, you know, here's what I did to get out of that um, or, you know, I'm not out of it and that's okay for right now, you know, and it, it's it's just like such an important thing because, um, you know, last week I, you know, Catherine knows me pretty well and she knows how many things that I do each day, you know, to try to just stay in that right place. Um, you know, and slowly over the last couple of months, I cut down on some of those things. And, you know, this really comes back to like an ego thing because, you know, thinking that there's some things that are, you know, just as, or maybe more important. So, you know, obviously my sobriety is always that top priority, but my sanity might not always be. So, um, you know, so I can easily think, all right, you know what, I know it's not even a question um, for me, luckily, you know, because I have that ingrained and not saying that it can never, you know, that I'm not ever vulnerable to a relapse, but, um, you know, so thinking, all right, you know what, I need to focus more on money. I need to focus more on being more successful. I need to be focused more on all these things that I think are going to fill me up more. And, you know, that bring, you know, it brought me back to a really bad place over time, you know, and mm-hmm. I got to that point where I was like, you know what, I can't, I have to do all this stuff. I, it's, and that's okay with me. You know, I have to be okay with exactly where I am at any given moment. And, you know, I can want more and I can, you know, I can work hard to improve myself every single day, but I have to be okay 
with where I am. And, uh, and I have to be really careful not to think that there's going to be something external that's going to fill up that hole because that's really what it's all about. You know, I, I, there's a, something I heard one time, actually I heard many times, but ego is easing God out. You know, and I don't know where people are in terms of their spirituality or anything, but to me it's a really important thing, which was the exact opposite of when I came in. You know, it, it was it was the furthest thing from my mind. But, you know, for me, the more connected I am spiritually, the better I am, you know, and that's really the ego is pretty much the opposite of that. The more connected I am to my ego, the worse I am. It's that simple for me, you know, and that's just my experience. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of those activities that you kind of referenced, Chris. I, I went back in preparation for this show, and I um, I re-listened to the willingness episode that you were on, and you talked about going into treatment, and they said, okay, now you have to make your bed every day, and now you, you yeah. have to do all these other activities, and you described some of your resistance, and maybe we can all talk about that here. It's just some sure. of that resistance that we felt in early sobriety and then even now as time has passed um, about, like, you know, what do you mean I have to do fill in the blank? Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, so, I, I mean, it's I like where you start. So my entire life I I thought that I never wanted any structure. You know, I thought that people who just did, like, um, you know, that lived like by structure or just had like you know this whatever normal life was I thought that that meant death and boring you know that it was just like I, I never thought I wanted that and for most of my life you know I've been self-employed and you know all these different things and so I just fought against structure and everything and you know I went to rehab and they told me wake up at 6 30 in the morning and, which was shocking in itself um, because, I, you know, unless I, I hadn't seen 6.30 in the morning unless maybe I had to get in flight at that time or, you know, staying up that late. You know, I just didn't understand that. So, But I was like, all right, you know what, I will. You know, they said make your bed every morning. You know, this little tiny bed this with a rubber um, rubber mattress or cover around it and, you know, I said, all right, I'll make, I'll make my bed. You know, in my mind, it's like, no, you're a sucker. Don't do that. Um, that's the ego. That's it saying, you know, and the great thing is, though, you know, luckily I had that other side. And, you know, the, this is something I talk about a lot because I don't know, you know, I don't know how I got this, but I had that other side. And I think I got it from being in so much pain, you know, and just being so morally, spiritually, and emotionally bankrupt you know, that I had that, uh, I just always call it the 51%. You know, so for some reason, 51% of me kept saying, you know what, just ignore that. You know, what they're doing has to be working. It's got to be better than what we're doing right now. Mm. You know, and that it would be that same exact thing when people, they would bring in speakers to come in and speak, and these people would be up there talking about how great that, you know, how great life was and this life beyond their wildest dreams and how much fun they have in sobriety. And I, my, you know, my just first thought, just like, F you, I hate you so much, you know, mm -hmm. because that's, I, I just couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand when somebody, you know, would talk about gratitude or anything like that. Um, you know, I just didn't understand it, you know, but the great thing was that 
51% of me just was like, you know what, listen to maybe. You know, so like the whole, the, the thing that helped me so much in terms of overcoming a lot of that ego is just, you know, one, pain, you know, and that's, that's you guys talked about change a bit. You know, the the whole thing is with change is like, Either you're going when you have so much pain, you're either going to just keep doing what you're doing and trying to mask that, um, you know, or just making it worse, or you're going to have to change, you know, and so change usually takes some type of action. And I was, you know, luckily I was able to keep just that in mind, you know, and that's what it's always still been. You know, I have to get through all that pain in order to really push me to that next level. And I think it's a really, really important thing for people to understand um, because once you see it that way, everything starts to change a bit. You just look at things like sometimes now, you know, when like I'm going through something that's, you know, that I think on the surface and that, you know, is really, really painful or, um, or something that I think is really, really bad, and I have to remember like, all right, I don't know what this means for me. You know, and because there's been so many things that have happened to me, um, and I'll just even talk about in sobriety that have been, you know, that I thought were terrible, you know, that were absolutely awful, that wound up being the best thing that could have ever happened for me. And, you know, the, uh, I'll just say this part, but like the, the biggest one being, you know, that I had made this promise to myself when I went to rehab that I would write something down every single day. And the first night that I got there, I couldn't write anything. I was so just out of it. And, you know, they put me into detox and I passed out. And the next morning I woke up and I wrote, this is the worst day of my life. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, there might have been some curse words in there. But, you know, essentially it was, this is the worst day of my life. And I truly believe that. You know, even though I had wanted to go, I had wanted to get clean, but I was so filled with fear. I was so filled with you know, dread and, you know, anxiety and everything. It felt like the worst day of my life. And about five months after that, I was able to look back at that day and be like, wow, that was the best day of my life. And I still believe that that day was the best day of my life. Um, Didn't feel like it at the time. It didn't feel like it the next day. I didn't go skipping up to the main unit at rehab and like, hey, guys, I'm here, you know. It wasn't like that at all. But, you know, the thing was, like, all that pain, you know, led me to such a place that I could never have understood, you know, or never even imagined. So, you know, I think that that's a lot of it. Sorry, I went off a little tangent, but. Well, no, I think it's your story is a great illustration of what Jean said about the fear of having to change and thinking, well, this is just the way things are. This is just the way I am. And your, your story you know, shows how that thinking can play out kind of in real life. And I think we hear a lot sort of resistance that comes in early sobriety when people say, yeah, yeah, like I want to do this, but I don't think you quite understand how action-packed my life is and there's no way I can fit all of these recovery activities. And, I mean, Chris, I know I've, I've poke fun at you because you're like the zen master on the mountain of recovery for me like you know I always say that Chris you know gets up at five in the morning and will stand on his head for an hour while reading (laughs) recovery literature and meditating and but you know can that all of those activities you know can feel very challenging when somebody says but you know here's some things that we've heard like but I'm a single mom 
I work full time. I travel a lot. Um, my husband or my wife doesn't support it. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of some examples, and and that my know, industry, so, my neighborhood, my yeah, age, my uh, mm-hmm. yeah, my kids. Any, yeah, I mean, you can have any. I've heard every single excuse ever, and I've heard all the contradictory excuses. So I've heard people who are saying, um, you know, my excuses. I don't have a girlfriend or a wife or a husband or a boyfriend. And then on the other side, well, my my girlfriend or my wife is the one holding me back, and so I can't get as involved. I don't have kids. I do have kids, you know, my job. Right. And then, like, you know, or I don't have a job, so I have to just spend all my time looking for a job. Then as soon as they get a job saying, like, oh, I got to, you know, now focus on the job, it's anything. You know, there's always yeah. going to be an excuse. But I think it can be offensive. It it can be offensive to to the ego to hear the word excuse because when we're in it, those reasons, those fears, feel very, very true. And you know, it 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 feels like there's no way I can do this, or you're asking me to do too much. How can you call my kids an excuse? You know, and so I think that's why when we were thinking about this program, it's helpful to sort of hear what ego sounds like. So when we hear ourselves saying some of these things or thinking some of these things, we can identify them and say, oh, interesting. Isn't that, that sounds like it could be a fearful thought. Let's investigate. Yep. Um, And something that, uh, that I heard too, and what you're describing, Chris, and, and maybe we can talk about it. I've heard, that which makes us feel that we are separate from other people, that we're different, um, you know, that we somehow can't relate to other alcoholics or that we're not that bad or, um, you know, that we're somehow separate. Yeah, or we're way worse or um, there's there's actually – again, when I was doing some research for this program um, and I was researching ego – there's a pamphlet um, on the Alcoholics Anonymous website that says it's something about I'm different. And it tells all of these stories from people's perspectives of, you know, different ethnicities, religions, um, gender, sexual orientation, what have you. And um, one of them was a famous person. And she said something like, you know, she went into the hospital to detox and she came in under an assumed name but then she didn't like how she was being treated, so she said, don't you know who I am? And she immediately mm-hmm. told the nurse who she was. And I thought, wow, that was such a great example of ego. Like, I'm separate than, I'm worse than, but better than, yep. you know. Um, I don't know. Amanda, what do you think about this idea of, you know, feeling separate or making excuses or any of the stuff that we've just been saying? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I definitely did. I, I know it, I did that, and I think a lot of people do that. You know, I just thought, you know, I um, I know for me, like, I thought I was so aware of the fact that, you know, I had a family history, and, you know, when I had seen people, you know, members of my family who, um, who um, were, you know, really plagued by, you know, the consequences of their alcoholism and stuff. And, you know, I had, I had seen so much that I just figured I, I, I knew what was going on and I was smart and I had everything under control. Um, you know, that was 
one way that you know my ego manifested. Um, you know, I just I just really thought I, I could outsmart it. I could outsmart my um, alcoholism, and I and I didn't need help. I mean, I never ever ever even tried to get sober until I did. I just just I never you know I just always thought I and I knew that I had a drinking problem for a long time. And I just figured I would can I would stop when I was re- damn well ready to stop, <laughs> mm. and that I and that I would just be able to do it. I mean, it was just to me, it was just that simple, and it was mm-hmm. so not possible. I mean, and it was so simple that I wouldn't even try it. And so you talk about um, when you talk about it being fear, and I never thought about it that way, but um, it was. It was something that I never even attempted because I, maybe deep down inside I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. I don't know. I'd, or you know, I used to say it was because I just didn't want to. But that's kind of like the um, you know puffing up your chest and saying, well, you know, I'd stop drinking, but you know, I I just don't want to right now. So I'll do it when I'm good and ready. Yeah, I mean that is definitely my story. I mean, if people will ask me, did you have a million day ones? And and it's like. In a way, yes, because kind of every day it was like today is the day I'm going to not drink or that I'm going to moderate. But on the other hand, like I never really tried until the day I got sober. Um, Yeah. So let's talk about, um, you know, when we start out in sobriety, sometimes we struggle with this idea of powerlessness versus our own capabilities. And different recovery programs take divergent views on this. So, Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, takes the view that the first step is admitting we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable, whereas the SMART Recovery Program teaches recovery through self-empowerment and self-reliance. Jean, so what are your thoughts um, on these two perspectives? Are, Are they mutually exclusive? You know, how does ego play into any of this? What's your experience? Um, well, my my experience is that um, I relied heavily on um, the recovery pathways that used more the internal locus of control versus external locus of control. So I really went for a self-empowered um, approach, but it still really required me to accept that that this disease is a reality. Like, I can't change the fact that I got addicted to alcohol and that it changed my brain physiology. Like, no matter how empowered I am, I can't undo that. But I was able to use sort of behavior modification and, and, um, and I actually, you know, went through some of the steps of a 12-step program on my own, too, just to, just to take from that. But... I think different people at different stages, um, depending where they're at when they decide to embark on recovery or are led <laughs> to embark on recovery, I think that that can control a lot of the appeal. And I think um, I'm glad that there's that there's sort of more options becoming available because I think there's a certain personality type that really, really, really resists that first step and the idea of acknowledging powerlessness. And so they just absolutely will not engage with that type of a program. And so for those people, I think that a lot of them think, I'm going to keep drinking because I'm not doing that. I'm not acknowledging powerlessness. I still have control. 
it's great that for someone like that, they can say, okay, great, let's use your control and let's try this other recovery pathway because the option isn't powerlessness or keep drinking, right? If you're going right. to recover, you need to recover. On the other hand, there's absolutely other people and other types or other um, places that we can get to in our journey into addiction where powerlessness is is 100% the best way to hand yourself over and and get yourself healed. And so I, I, I write a blog and I write a blog about self-empowered recovery or self-managed recovery. But I always, always, always tell people, okay, first of all, pick a pathway and get on it. Like just because you're self-managing doesn't mean that you don't do anything to get better. You still have to pick a pathway. And you have to sort of decide which one appeals to you. And the most important thing is, is that if the one you pick ain't working, then get on another one and stick to it. I mean, I don't mean jump around, but... But really, if you, when I hear someone say, well, I went to a few meetings and I didn't like it and it wasn't for me and I wasn't that bad and so I went back to what I was doing before, I think, no, you you need to choose another pathway that's a better fit for you. But I, well, think, I they, think that's what they share in common is, is that acknowledging that, you know, the, the disease is the problem or the disease is the reality. And we can't change the reality. We have to We have to reorganize our life so that we can live with the reality of, of this disease. Yeah, and I I I think that you know the idea of ego being literally a fearful thought and understanding that mm-hmm. helps helps parse the motivation so that if it's like, oh, I tried a couple meetings and I just didn't like those. I didn't like anybody there. I don't want to do this. You know, maybe that's fear whereas, you know, some other motivation um you know, we've we've had people on the program before talking about, um, you know, we and on the God episode, we had a staunch atheist. And so for that person, you know, she has her own methods, but it's not fear-based, you know. So I think that's, mm-hmm. then that's when you know that it's not the ego. Um, and for me, and I, I really want to hear Chris and Amanda on this topic too, you know, for me, I found great power in powerlessness so Mm -hmm. for me they weren't actually mutually exclusive oddly it was like Mm -hmm. when I stopped trying to control everything and control the reality that I was alcoholic and I wanted to control that and once I said no that's just how it is sister all of a sudden I had great stores of energy become available to me to take all these new actions and I realized that I had the power to change my thinking that when you said before Jean that I thought just that's how it is I mean I thought my victim thoughts and my trauma thoughts and my fear thoughts and everything I just thought that I thought I was just a ball of anxiety and I was made broken and that was it and what I found Mm -hmm. out was that like Dr. Wayne Dyer says that our thoughts are like a ticker tape going by our mind at all times. And you can like pick a thought off the ticker tape. And if it's not working for you, you can put it back and like, let it go. That was, that's amazing power that I get to control my thinking. And for me, I didn't understand that 
until I surrendered to the reality of my alcoholism. So there's a little paradox in that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris, what do you think? Yeah, so I, I really like what you said. I, I agree with it. Um, the whole idea of surrender and, you know, I didn't understand that at first and that was completely fine. <laughs> you know, like I would hear people talk about surrender to win and I didn't understand any of that. But I loved the idea, like the whole idea of powerlessness to me is one of the most freeing things in the world because what it did was it essentially removed such, so much mental energy from me um, each day because, you know, every day that I could wake up and I would just understand, all right, you know what, I can't drink or use today. And that was, instead of having to go back and forth and back and forth and say, like, uh, maybe, you know, or, you know what, I'll be okay with one or, you know, it's just some pills or whatever. It was just this idea of, all right, you know what, I don't have to, you know, and I can't, you know, forget I don't have to, I can't. And that was such, and that still is such a freeing thing because, you know, before and, you know, towards the end it wasn't really, I would start drinking and, taking pills as soon as I woke up every morning for, you know, for years. But, um, you know, there would, there would be times when, it, you know, it would be that constant back and forth. You know what? Should I? Shouldn't I? That doesn't, that's not a part of my life anymore. So that just, you know, alone frees up so much time and so much energy. And, um, you know, for me, it, it, it wasn't it wasn't something that I could control. It wasn't something you know, that I, that I still can, and it just, so it wound up becoming something, and I had no clue, I didn't know about, um, I didn't know anything about recovery, you know, I had wanted to go to a 10-day treatment center, and, you know, that, I think they did aversion therapy, because I was like, 10 days is so much better than going for 30 days, you know, I'll get it done in 10, and luckily, you know, what wound up happening with me is that, when I had, um, you know, when I had made that decision that I was going to get clean, nothing, I didn't know anything about getting sober. I had made this decision I was going to get clean, and I said that to my wife who, you know, and we were, you know, we were estranged at the time. We were, we were separated, and, um, you know, I moved away from her and my, you know, one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and I, I came back up, and I said, when I finally had that moment, you know, that moment of clarity and that really just that moment where I just gave up um, and I said, you know, I want to get clean and I want to go to this uh, 10-day treatment center and she called this therapist that we had been seeing and, you know, and over the summer and who had never taken a dollar from us um, because he's like, I can't help you. And she called, she called him and said, you know, Chris wants to get clean and he wants to go to this 10-day treatment center. And the guy said, he, Chris is done making decisions. This is where he's going to go. And, Whoa. you know, I just I just went there, you know. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't look up anything, you know. I just went. And, you know, that's where I was introduced to AA and I was introduced to everything that would wind up, you know, forget just saving my life but actually giving me a life. And, you know, it's still a constant process of understanding more and understanding more. And that's fine. You know, like that's, a, that's actually a beautiful thing, um, you know, but, so, but everything with me um, pretty much came, oh, no, you know, I don't want to do that. I shouldn't do that. It's not going to work for me. All the things that you guys listed, you know, every one of those excuses, and then being like, all right, you know what, let me try it. Um, let me try it anyway. You know, what's it going to, how's it going to hurt? 
Um, and then luckily, you know, and always through lots of pains, you know, like I wish I could say that I had a better way to do things, um, you know, and that I found like a pain-free way to change, but I didn't, you know, I haven't. It has to be through lots of pain, and that's, you know, it, it winds up becoming a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I wrote down something that Jean mentioned before, and I want to kind of circle back to that, and that's this idea of outcomes. Um, mm. And I'm just curious of what you guys think on this. I, I heard somebody say recently that ego is attachment to outcomes, um, and that sort of ties into, Jean, how did you put that, the, the locus of control being external or, or internal? Um mm-hmm. You know, so it's like we're we're taking these actions, and then I know that I was always very invested in what I wanted as the best outcome. So sort of like how Chris said, okay, I'll get clean, but I'll do it at a ten day facility. You know, um, mm-hmm. yeah, Dean, what do you what do you kind of think of this idea of mm-hmm. since you since you mentioned outcomes? Um, what are your thoughts? Um. It's, I hadn't heard that expression before that ego is attachment to outcomes. Is that what you, how you put it? Yeah. I yeah. think, wow. Yeah. That's, I'm really hooked on that. I, I think I will probably spend, you know, many years of my recovery journey for the rest of my life working on that because that's, I mean, I was a gold star, you know, please give me a sticker, give me a reward, give me an award at school or, you know, I mean, I was really, really um, motivated by achievement and award and validation. <clears throat> and, um, and, and there's good things in that. I think like Catherine, you kind of mentioned too about um, you want to thank your ego. I, I'm really in the process of trying to figure out how to get rid of the bad parts of it and keep the good mm. parts of it because it's not all bad. <clears throat> so, I mean, if our outcome is to stay sober and make a positive contribution to the world every day, that's a good outcome. If our outcome is to control the, the people and circumstances and things around us and, and make them do what we want so we feel good or we look good, then we're still behaving in a way that's reflective of of how our illness manifests in our mind, right? And um, I I really think that will be a, a long struggle for me because I really really like the validations. But there are there there are um, natural positive validations that that are okay. You know when you when you do something nice for a stranger and they say thank you, um, and you've helped them that's good, right? That's that's a natural, positive thing. But if you're doing it so that, you know, maybe they'll like you and invite you over for dinner or, um, uh, I don't know, like <laughs> in our in our local paper, we have a roasting toast. Like maybe I'll get toasted in the paper. I don't know. If you're trying to make <laughs> them do something beyond just helping them, then that's very ego-driven or, you know, that's crossing a line. So... I don't know. I'm just taking your thought and sort of running around the field with it, chewing on it because I have no brilliant answers about it. I'm I'll I'll really be chewing on this one for a long time. 
Yeah, there's there's a lot to to think about there. Chris, what do you think? I hear you kind of reacting. Well, yeah, so I, I love that. So when I did my fourth and fifth step, um, my fourth step was probably about 85 pages long. Any person that I'd ever met, anything that ever happened to me, pretty much anything that existed was on that. And, you know, the after I did went through the fifth step, it all came down, all those 85 pages of resentments, fears, and everything else came down to three things, three words. Ego is the first one. Fear and expectations were the other two. And it's still exactly the same. And they're all completely connected, and they're all, if I experience something wrong, you know, some problem or some situation or anything where I'm feeling off, it always, 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 without a doubt, comes down to one or all three of those um, words, ego, fear, and expectations. And, you know, because they are so closely connected, um, you know, and I think so much of that comes, like, so much of expectations, which is, you know, really what, essentially what you're saying. And I could do a follow-up show about either either that or fear. But, um you know, that, that that it all comes back to ego. You know, if I'm expecting something, if I'm expecting, you know, you to do something, if I'm expecting, you know, this to happen this way, it's because, you know, I think I'm entitled to that or I think that that's, if it happens that way, you know, that it's me controlling it. So it all comes back to my ego and how, you know, how, how I'm trying to control something or, and the amazing thing is that, you know, when you talk about outcomes and when you talk about anything is that I'm always wrong. You know, something happens and I'm like, oh, my God, this is so bad. And it always winds up being so much better than I could have ever imagined. There always, always, always winds up being a reason that it happened exactly the way that it did. Um, and that's amazing, you know. But does that mean that, you know, it's, if something bad happens in five minutes, um, then I'm going to be like, oh, no, this is uh, this is great. No, <laughs> you know, I don't, that's not how my mind thinks. My mind and my ego is going to say, like, oh, my God, this is so bad. We wanted it to happen this way or whatever it is. Um, right. So it, they're, they're so closely connected that way. I definitely hey, Chris, agree. Seem, can I jump in for a second, Catherine? Sure. Um, Chris, you mentioned your fourth and fifth steps. Can you just speak briefly for our listeners that aren't familiar with the 12 steps, what each of those steps are and, and why they're done? Yeah, sure. Sorry. Um, I should have been clear with that. Um, so the fourth step is really where you're taking an inventory of your, um, you know, a moral inventory. And it's really, you know, the the whole point of it in my mind is really to get okay with your like I was talking about getting okay with your past you know putting all these different things down um, whether it's resentments um, fears you know sex inventory these things that really um, hold us back um, from life you know from being able to really truly um, experience life and you know getting them all down on paper and also a really important part of that is looking at you know, looking at my part in all this stuff, you know, instead of, you know, Catherine talked earlier about always being the victim or, you know, these things, and that's, you know, that's where I want to go to with anything. Somebody does something to me that's wrong, and I want to think, like, oh, my God, why does this have to happen to me? I didn't do anything. And then I look at it a little closer, and most times I had something 
um, to do with that. You know, even if it was a matter of just living in fear of it or something like that. And then the fifth step is really where you sit down with somebody, whether that's a sponsor or, you know, a spiritual advisor, whatever it is. In most cases, it's a sponsor. In my case, it was a sponsor. And, you know, go through all that stuff. And the main reason for that is that it's really hard for me um, or for somebody to be able to look at their inventory, their wrongs, their resentments, and be able to do things like find, you know, a pattern. Um, you know, in my case, where it's like all these things, these 85 pages of crap comes down to fear, ego, and expectations, three words. You know, I could have saved uh, lots and lots of time and, you know, ink if I had, you know, but I'm never going to understand that if I don't do that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, and and I, I think so. We're we're kind of coming up on the hour here, but there is a topic that I want to talk about. Um, and this is actually something that came out of my fourth and fifth step. Was it's been my experience that my ego doesn't want to let other people in, so I don't mm-hmm. want to share. I don't want to be open. I don't really trust being vulnerable. Um, and when I was going into my searching and fearless moral inventory, my ego was sort of funny enough, like, all right, we got this figured out. Like, you've got a victim complex, you know, you've got this egomaniac with the inferiority complex thing happening. You know, I kind of had a lot of these fears, quote unquote, figured out. So when they started showing up on my my inventory, I was like, I wasn't really surprised. When I did the fifth step where you're sharing with somebody all of this, what it hit me like a freight train. And if you had seen me, I mean, I think Jean and Amanda, I remember you guys saying to me, like, what is the matter with you? You sound like mm-hmm. you're a mess. It's because, in fact, mm-hmm. I was. Basically, what happened was my sponsor had said, well, um, you know, you are not letting people in. You're not being real about what you need. And so you need to start sharing from the deepest part of your soul at recovery meetings, for example. Um, you have to start asking for help. You have to start saying what you need. You need to let people in. And I was, I don't want to overstate, but I don't think it is. I was really re-traumatized. I mean, at that moment and it lasted for weeks where excuse me that happens I start to cough when I get nervous um I really I so see it's coming up ego excuse me um if if I really felt like well now I can't go back to self-protecting um but I can't go forward with sharing so where am I um so, Amanda, what do you think about this? Uh, well, um, it's a, well for me, I'm, I've always been a complete open book, um, and I don't know why. Um, so this is something that's really, I don't know. I guess it's easy for me, and I feel bad. Like I, I and I, and I don't know why. Like, and I hear what you're saying, and I, and I, I remember how difficult it was for you, and you did. You sounded like a different person, and um, it's just something 
that I, I guess you know my in my house things were just always very open and we I was we, you know we did talk about things so it's it's not a fear of mine. Um, I feel I feel bad every time you ask me about something about this topic. I have other thoughts, so I'll share when we get to the end. I don't know if anyone else has thoughts on. I mean, because I for me it's um, I I don't know. I, I I actually think I make myself too too vulnerable often to people, and that was something I had to learn to do is to hold back a little bit. Like not everyone needs to know every last bit of my business either. Um, I had to lob a softball to somebody because I had to put my phone on mute to have a coughing fit. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Thank you for well, your alternate I'll, perspective on vulnerability. <laughs> <laughs> this is Jean. I want to jump in on being vulnerable because I've I've had to I've made a big change in that regard um, through recovery, and I, I have a really great example of it that. That is, you know, I realized um, after the fact, but um, I was a performing songwriter and I don't perform anymore. Since I've been in recovery, I just, I just can't ride the the wave of um, anxiety and um, adrenaline and everything that it takes to get on stage by yourself and sing. I'm just not there yet. <clears throat> but I also did a lot of professional speaking and I could so connect with the audience from the stage and and just I you know I loved being able to use my words and use my experiences to draw something out of the audience and I would see them maybe react or wipe a tear and I would think okay you know we're connecting and I loved that but there's this barrier between me and them right I mean they can't get me I'm up on stage or I'm behind a podium or I'm behind my guitar and after the performance would be over, people would want to come up and talk to me. And I would, it wasn't the, an ego thing where I thought, I'm too good to talk to you. It was that I just could not be vulnerable enough face-to-face to really connect. So I'd listen and be polite, and but honestly, I wasn't hearing them. I was just too, my mind was just racing because I was just, I, I wanted to get back behind the podium, back behind the the mic like I really liked I liked it being a one direction thing I talk to you you listen you react I walk away we're done. so in recovery look what I'm doing now I'm, I'm writing a blog where I connect with people and we the, the blog posts are an idea and then people post comments and we back and forth on the comments so we engage or on this show where I get to hear from people like Chris and all of our amazing guests and each of you, and we learn from each other. And you know what? This is the amazing part. I'm never nervous before I come on the Bob Lauer. I'm never nervous before I hit send, except for the first day on my blog. I, because I'm not behind a facade. I'm not peeking out from behind my ego. I'm being real and I'm being authentic and I'm, I'm being vulnerable, and I'm, I know that it's going to be a two-way exchange. And that's a huge difference, and it's so much better. And even though I was able to reach people before and do good things, I do so much more this way. And it's, it's, I'm, I just feel like my life has so much meaning because of the way I'm engaging with people now than the way that I used to do it. Here, here. 
Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a real gift of doing this program, too, is that it's um, an opportunity for me to test my willingness to be vulnerable and authentic um, with other people in recovery. So it's a it's a great opportunity that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Chris, do you have any thoughts on that topic? Given that you... you saw me walking down the street and hauling my bloody carcass along post fifth death and he appeared the Zen master on the recovery mountain, you know, to guide me <laughs> and to carry my laptop bag <laughs> when I asked for help. Yes, exactly. That was great. Um then you weren't that bad. <laughs> um no, you know it, I was actually just writing down uh, something because I, I loved that, you know, that you're never nervous anymore when you hit send or doing that. Um, that's awesome. Um, you know, vulnerability is the the whole idea of it is yeah, it's all about fear. <laughs> it's all like, a you know, it's the exact opposite of the ego um, because it's all these things that, you know, the, the way that I want to appear and the way that I want you to think about me and is if it's exactly this way, then you're going to like me more or you're going to give me more money or whatever it's going to be. Um, you know, and it's, it's a hard thing and it's, it's, it's probably still one of my biggest challenges. Um, and you know, I have to, I have to, it's, it's a lot easier for me to help somebody than it is for me to ask for help. And, you know, I, it usually takes me having to be in a lot of pain um, to, you know, to to get become more vulnerable. And because it really, it just comes back to that whole idea of, you know, it's really simple. When you're in, when I'm in a lot of pain, um, either I'm going to do something about it and I'm going to try to change. And, you know, so a lot of times it's, that means something like asking somebody for help or telling somebody how I'm feeling and, you know, that I don't always have it all, you know, that I am not just that, you know, that, that Zen master and, you know, that I mess up and, you know, do things wrong and feel terrible certain times, um, you know, and, and just saying that, you know, it's such an amazing thing. And, um, you know, I, I always have more respect for people when they are vulnerable. Um, so, which is, so it's interesting that it's still such a challenging thing for me to, you know, for me to do, but, you know, I I can be honest and say that I have come leaps and bounds (laughs) since I got sober um, in in terms of, you know, embracing that and not just running from it. Absolutely. So as we kind of come to a close, um, Amanda, since you said you had some thoughts, we'll, we'll go around for closing thoughts for the night, starting with you. Sure. Well, just um, um, a couple things, and I, I just said, I was just really listening, and I didn't want to interrupt anyone. But um, just one one thing from the beginning of the show when we were talking about like looking at the past and you know looking into mm-hmm. the future. You know, there's that goofy thing, and I just I have to bring it up because it's kind of something that sticks with people. You know, if you're if you have one foot in yesterday 
in one foot in tomorrow mm-hmm. than you're pissing on today. And it's so, it's true. <laughs> right. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's so true. <laughs> and um, I find that, um, you know, I guess, you know, one of the biggest things for me, and I was actually talking about this today, is uh, kind of the opposite of ego for me. And, um God, what is the word that you just that we were just talking about? I'm, I've really just been <laughs> listening. Um, vulnerability? Uh, not vulnerability. Before that, it was with a P. Um, tar- no, not with a P. Um, well, what I was going to say, oh, is a powerlessness is mm-hmm. um, maybe another thing like accepting my powerlessness, which is something that, you know, was huge for me. Uh, what I was going to say is the opposite of ego to me is acceptance. And, mm. and you know, maybe for some people powerlessness is a word that they can't tolerate. You know, their ego won't let them hear that word. But acceptance, um, and maybe even me, um, because, you know, I do, well, I do know I'm completely powerless over alcohol. I mean, that's I've accepted that a long time ago. But to me, I guess acceptance is the action, and acceptance is something that is such a huge part of every bit of my day and every bit of my recovery um, I've recently um, went and, and it comes in with like being like letting my ego take control and being the trying to control situations. I've had a difficult situation going on in my life, and I like I had this bright idea the other day, and I luckily I voiced it to a friend because I was like, oh, I'm just going to call them up and I'm going to say this, and you know, this is the answer, and things will work out just fine. Mm. <laughs> and my. Yeah. Um, and and I'm like and it was kind of, and it was it was a good neutral territory and my friend was like um, how about you take the advice that you gave me six months ago and you just wait to see what happens and you just accept <laughs> that things are how they are mm-hmm. today and that you just sit back and you allow that other person to have their own thoughts feelings and actions and um, make their own decisions rather than telling them what they're going to do I was like I told you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's it, you know sometimes I need to be reminded like I had it all figured out and you know, um, but I and I probably it probably would have blown things up because when I let that when I don't accept things for how they are, um, and let things happen the way that they're supposed to that powerlessness like you you said Chris like. That is such a free. I, I never understood that before re, getting into recovery. Like that is so freeing. Like I don't have to control this. I don't have to try to fix this situation. I don't have to direct. I don't have to do any of that. All I have to do is accept that things are how they are, and that they will end up exactly how they're supposed to. And and trust that. And and it's hard to do. And I have, you know, like Chris said, any given moment, I have moments where I'm like perfectly fine and I'm serene. And I have, and and I should say, when I have acceptance, I have serenity. I have like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, I can go through my day and life is happy. And, that, you know, and that's why we talk about it a lot. Um, because, you know, when we have serenity, we don't have this like great desire to go drink or, you know, or you know, whatever, do crazy things. Um, mm-hmm. But when I... And, but I can also turn around on my ego. I'll get this fear like, oh, but what if if I don't control it, if I don't hurry up and do this, then things are going to turn out this way. And I, and, and I start future tripping, I am all done. My head my head goes like in, just in the garbage. 
It's mm-hmm. it's just a mess. And so I have to stop myself sometimes. And sometimes I have to, I actually, the other day I started doing it and I had to literally say out loud, like, just stop. Because my mind can, you know, something can come up in my head and I can have 60 scenarios go through my head in like two minutes. And, you know, I have it all figured out and, oh, well, we can do this and this and this and this and this. And and my mind goes absolutely crazy. And sometimes I just have to literally stop myself and and just let it go. And sometimes that's all I do is I just just pray to let it go and accept things for how they are. And it's um, so much of that is just like telling my ego to shut up. Like I cannot (laughs) control people, places, or things, period. And it's so hard to do sometimes because it's it's so much. Um, that's another thing that, that I always talk about. Like the thing that makes me really good at my job makes me struggle with recovery sometimes because at, at work I do have to control com- people, places, and things, and I do have to control outcomes, you know, to a certain extent. Um, but in recovery I have to let all of that go and, you know, just accept that um, things are going to, you know, happen the way they're supposed to happen, and there's very little I can do about most things except for how I react to them. That's about all I have control over. Yeah. And, Amanda, your example underscores the importance of connecting with other people in recovery, which we always, always, always emphasize on this show, that whatever whatever path to recovery that you take or whatever program you want to follow, it has to include in our view um, other people because, you know, look at that. You were in a tough time and connecting with another person, they used your own wisdom back on you. <laughs> um, <laughs> you didn't know you were so smart, but you were. Um, and also, That's what I said. I was then, like, sure. <laughs> but then also, like, when, when you hear your ego talking, because you've connected with other people who are going through the same thing, you can say, oh, aha, like, I, I hear that for what it is, so I can tell it to be quiet. Um, and so I, I think that that came through loud and clear. Um, thank you for that. Uh, Jean, how about you? Closing thoughts? Um, yeah, they... I. I think we've covered a lot of ground tonight and I hope we've given people a lot to think about Um, for our listeners in early recovery. I just encourage you to just be gentle with yourself and, and just maybe listen to the show twice and dot down some things that jump out at you because tackling the ego is, is it's a hard thing and, um, and it takes some, some gentle, careful, thought but like Chris said it's also we're never done Um, someone once wished me a slow and enlightened recovery and I thought it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever heard because it really helped me embrace that I don't have to hurry up and fix this and move on I can really enjoy every step of this journey for the rest of my life and that as Amanda said like that is acceptance. That's the opposite of battling with my ego. Is just saying, yeah, I can, I, I can change forever. I can spend the rest of my life learning and getting well. And um, that sounds really scary when you don't want to change, but it's not so scary once you start to see how great it feels to just 
unburden yourself set your ego down and start tending to it a little bit so i i I learned a lot tonight and and i i'm going to listen again so that i can learn some more (laughs) me too and i you know listeners as you're jotting down ideas um just don't forget that you can always share them on our website, thebubblehour.com. Uh, leave a comment or send us an email um, if there's any questions, comments, concerns. Um, you know, certainly we're we're happy to hear them always. Uh, Chris, so so we'll leave the last word to you here. Yeah, I learned a lot too. This is really really good. I learned a lot from all of you and gave me a lot to think about. And, um, I'm glad that you just said about listening to it to something like this twice and it, it just reminded me of how as I mentioned at the beginning how many times I listened to this one thing from Sandy Beach about uh, it's all about spiritual principles but you know all the ego piece it, it didn't make any sense to me but I knew how important it was um, you know which was just one of those things and you know a couple of other things one thing that I was thinking about too when Amanda was talking was just this whole idea of when I get stuck in how I feel, I think that it's going to, it's how I'm going to feel forever. So if I feel great, I think I'm going to feel like this forever. And it's so amazing. Mm -hmm. And this is something, especially in early sobriety that was very, very, um, you know, tricky. And it's still to this day is, uh, it, it still happens. It just gets a little bit shorter, but you know, if I'm feeling great, I think, Oh my God, this is going to be, you know, it's going to be like this forever. It's so great. And why, you know, and I could go to a meeting or meet with people and, you know, maybe they're not in that same place. And I'm like, why, what's wrong with you guys? Why are you so depressed? And then, you know, 10 minutes later, maybe I, all of a sudden I don't feel good. I feel terrible. And I'm like, what are you guys all laughing about? I'm going to feel like this forever. And, you know, it can go back and forth like that. And that's like a really important thing. Um, to just keep in mind that, you know, nothing lasts forever. You know, life's all about change. And, you know, one of the things that the, the closing thought that is, is something I've been thinking about during this, but, um, you know, it's something that my wife always says to me, and it's like, look at your feet, you know, look down at your feet, look at where you are right now, you know, is everything good? And, you know, it's just that reminder, something that simple, um, you know, it, because most of the time, pretty much all the time, everything's perfect at that moment. You know, all the things that, um, you know, I can be imagining or I think are going to happen or problems or, you know, what's going to happen in the future or how did I do that, you know, it's not at this moment. You know, and I just have to remember that. And, you know, so if there's uh, one thing to come out of this, you know, for this episode, but if you can just remember that, you know, look at your feet, everything's good right now. I love that. Yeah. I also I want to mention since uh, we've we've talked about a couple of different resources tonight that I want to mention for listeners. So uh, Sandy Beach is the speaker that Chris has talked about here. You can find Sandy's talk on xa-speakers.org. That's X is an X-ray, A is an Apple speakers.org. Uh, Jean mentioned her blog, but she was uh, modest and didn't mention the name of it. But um, it's a beautiful resource, Unpickled unpickled.wordpress.com I think right Jean it is and then uh, and and I think Jean you also mentioned uh, Dr. Brené Brown so if folks have not listened to Dr. Brown um, you can listen to her two TED Talks 
on uh, vulnerability and shame. Those are wonderful. She's also written a few books, uh, Daring Greatly and The Gifts of Imperfection, I think, are the two that come to mind. So that Brené Brown encourage people to look for her. So um, as we close the show tonight, we'd like to direct you to our parent organization, shiningstrong.org. And there you'll find links to all of our resources, including The Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now, and links to some other initiatives around recovery advocacy. And if you'd like to go directly to The Bubble Hour's website, that is thebubblehour.com, and there you can listen to our shows directly from the website, or you can follow a link to subscribe to our podcast. We thank you all for listening to The Bubble Hour and hope you all have a great evening. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Bye-bye.